Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Last week, Joel and I looked specifically at how Jesus used an indirect way to provoke a kind of self-revelation in his interlocutors. Socrates did the same kind of teaching. Uh, Today, we focus on the need not merely to increase our knowledge or even change our minds, but recognizing that teaching virtue requires that the student transform their desires. Are there methods for changing desires, or are we stuck with with the desires that we have? Can we change our desires by law? and its reward and punishment. If what we want is the good and the beautiful, then for our desires to change, don't we need to see something good and beautiful? But aren't we drawn to vice because it promises things that are far more pleasant, which appear far better and more beautiful? Can we change our eyes so that we might see rightly and therefore desire rightly? Well, that's a lot of questions, but Joel and I discuss these and bring up some stuff that's been hanging around in Christian tradition for millennia and talk about how it relates to this issue. Now, Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. You can email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com or follow us on Twitter at Wondering Wisdom. In both those cases, the there's an underscore where the O or the A would be in Wondering. And also check out tacticalfaith.com for more podcasts, blogs, info about us, and opportunities to get involved with us or support us. Tactical Faith is a nonprofit whose goal is to encourage thoughtfulness and wisdom in the church. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. So last week we talked about how uh, we talked about the unwilling student of ethics. We showed an example of Jesus in Mark 11 doing some pretty genius moves uh, in something that sounds like he's being sort of childish, but actually was really brilliant if you see what he does and how it exposes, how he sort of held up a mirror. Socrates does this, Jesus does this, holds up a mirror to the unwilling student so that they might see the flaws, the failures within themselves, and they realize they have, as we say, room to grow, room to develop. And it is often, though, the case that we are too arrogant. Even even when we hate ourselves, we're still too sort of arrogant and self-obsessed to think that we have room to grow. We tend to believe that the world around us needs to change. And the one who shows us the mirror, our goal often is to destroy the mirror or Perhaps we have some willingness to change, but our goal is merely to do the smallest amount possible. Joel ended with this. The smallest amount possible to make that image not that we're seeing in the mirror not so ugly, not so vicious looking, and so on and so forth. And this is where legalism comes in. This is where uh, we might do some sort of spiritual discipline to check off a box. This is where we might try to do something Uh, maybe even say we're sorry, just so we can get that ugly image out of the way. The question that we sort of ended with was, what does it mean to be a willing student? Maybe how does a willing student get educated? And uh, what in fact are we being taught when we're being taught to be more virtuous or when we're being taught to be more ethical? Uh, what precisely is happening is supposed to be happening to us. What in fact is supposed to change about us to make us better people to begin to grow to where we begin to hit the, get closer and closer to hitting the mark. So that's a question we're going to study today. We're going to talk about a little bit today. And in fact, it's going to, maybe I can give a little preview of where we're going. Uh, We're going to talk in more depth about a specific, uh, a uh, way of a specific understanding of justice itself as an ordering of desire, which that's a little bit of a, a hint of where we're going. Uh, 
ordering of a desire in Plato's Republic. That's a understanding of Plato's Republic that is accurate and everybody else gets wrong, but I'll tell you the <laughs> truth about it. And then we're going to use that Plato's Republic and his idea of justice and desire. We're going to actually transi- transition into talking about politics. So if you want to know who you're supposed to vote for, then listen for the next few weeks and Joel and I will definitely not tell you the answer. Uh, but we will talk a little bit about a little bit about about issues related to politics. It's a classical move all the way back to Aristotle that you talk about ethics. And then once you understand something about ethics, then you start talking about politics. Well, we're going to sort of make that move and we'll see what we have to say. We might talk about human rights, which is kind of Joel's specialty uh, issues of human rights and so on and so forth. Oh, we're going to talk about Plato's view of justice, so on and so forth. So that's that's sort of where we're going. But today we're going to talk about what does it mean to become a willing student? What what in fact are we being trained into? And so I guess, Joel, we've talked about unwilling students. I've talked about how Jesus kind of got them, how Socrates got them, held that mirror up to them. What does it look like to be the kind of person who can be taught to be more virtuous. So what is the person who is becoming more virtuous? What does that look like? That's a great question. <laughs> well, I ask it, so yeah. So if you ask any random person on the street, do you want to be a good person? I think universally the answer will be yes. Um, the only person, only kind of person who would say no is someone who's being a smart aleck. Um, but really, we we all want to be good people, or at least we think we want to be good people. And so the issue isn't to su- isn't convincing someone they want to be a good person. It's helping someone understand what's going on with being a good person, and and what what's the target we're aiming at. In talking about being a, a willing student as opposed to unwilling, it might be a bit of an overstatement to call people truly willing students because the will a, a truly willing student would be someone who is um, looking for for what the good is. And I think we talked about this a few episodes ago, but you know Plato Plato says in in, in the the Mino. Uh, dialogue, you know, how how can you look for something that you don't know what you're looking for? And um, so there's kind of an element of that, like the willing student is looking for something, but they don't exactly know what they're looking for. And so it's more of a a transition to becoming more willing to, to having a sense of what you're actually looking for so that you can look for what you need to look for. No, this is really good because I think a lot of people, when they think about being good, they're still under this, under this sophistic misunderstanding that being good means doing a bunch of stuff that you really don't like doing. Right. This is a disastrous, but ubiquitous problem in Christian in Christian understanding, and and in just everyday life. That being good means doing stuff that other people like, but that you don't. It's it's something sort of yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I mean, if we go back to that mirror analogy from from the last episode, you know, someone shows you that maybe you don't look as good as you thought you did. So you can try to actually 
change yourself or you could put some makeup on until the next person shows you. And then you put some more makeup on. And I, 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 I want to be very generous when, in, in talking about this, but when I was in high school, I worked in uh, food service of a nursing home. And there were some ladies in the nursing home that put so much makeup on, like you could just, like you could almost see that there was, that there was a layer of makeup, not, not that from that, you know, what their face was like, but that like there was, there was dimension to the amount of makeup on their face. You wondered why all of them had a pickaxe in their bathroom, but it was (laughs) to get the makeup off. But there, there was this sense of as they aged, they wanted to correct the imperfections. And so they, they kept adding to the makeup, which then in a sense, removed the imperfections, but showed that there were all these imperfections there that were being covered up and didn't actually address what was going on. Yeah. Now, it, showed, it showed the desperation to cover the imperfections, which in this case, it's, it's, I mean, you can't, there's, there's not really a good solution to the pro to the quote unquote problem. You're not going to change. I mean, we're all getting old, right? I got a, I got, I can pluck the weird hair hairs that are pop, popping up all over <laughs> the spots on my head. But you know, the, there's a certain point where you, you know, where you just have to accept that that's what's happening. Maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm not a woman and I'm not, I don't wear a lot of makeup, <laughs> uh, but, but, but we're talking about situations where people can actually, right. where you're looking in the mirror. And in fact, there is something wrong that can be changed but we're not talking about physically because that's right. Right. So it's, it's not a, per, it's not a perfect analogy, but the, the sense that I'm getting at is we want to paper over problems more often than not, that we want to actually address the issue because we don't know what the issue is most of the time, I think. Right. Um, we're just looking for the approval. We're, yeah. We're looking for the approval because we don't know how to evaluate things beyond the approval that we get or the disapproval we get from others. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's basically the standard. And this is one of the things that Nietzsche likes to pick at uh, with, with what are essentially the utilitarians, the idea that, that uh, ethics arose out of people doing actions and then receiving approval from, from others and once they they kept receiving this approval, they're like, well, that, this must be a good thing because I've received approval from the other person. And Nietzsche says, that's ridiculous. And he gives a whole uh, interesting argument criticizing that. But it seems like that's how a lot of us function. We, we don't know what makes something right, except that it causes other people to smile at us. Right. And we don't know that something is right, except that it seems to make God happy with us. But I don't like it. Like, it seems like, most of what we care about are things that we like. We don't necessarily like being good, but we know it leads to positive results. Therefore, being good just means doing things that other people like and give you approval for, but not necessarily that you like. And and that is at the heart of what virtue ethics is trying to do. Virtue ethics is saying our desires are misshapen. So how do we change our desires so that when we say we desire the good, we're actually desiring the good. I mean, it, it, it's, 
and and if if we wanted to you know do a quick snapshot of of the process it's it's like coming to to love my, it's like my experience of coming to love coffee when when i first started drinking coffee i would drink mochas because they were sweet and chocolatey and they weren't too coffee like and then I decided maybe I can mix some hot chocolate kind of stuff in with regular coffee to take some of the bite out of the coffee. And then, of course, add cream and sugar on top of that. <laughs> and over time, I, I cut out the hot chocolate part, and then it was just coffee with cream and sugar. And then a friend introduced me to really good coffee that you you don't need cream and sugar in. And, and but... Had he introduced that to me when I was drinking mochas, I wouldn't have appreciated it. I wasn't ready to appreciate good coffee. Um, I had to be had to go those incremental steps to where I could even begin to appreciate what good coffee would taste like. That's the same process that we're talking about with virtue. When we start from wherever we are, we can't or it's very, very rare and difficult for someone to go from having a completely incorrect view of the good to desiring something not necessarily contrary to the good, but that is not in alignment with the good and doing a, a, a 180 or a 90 degree or what whatever degree it has to be and just you know flipping immediately to getting the good because that's just not how our desires work. We, yeah. we, we can't change our desires, you know, in a snap. It's and there, a and there, there, there are lots of other analogies. If you're not a coffee person and, or if you drink bad coffee, there are a lot of other analogies, right? I first started drinking coffee like mochas because I needed the, I needed, I wanted the caffeine desperately. And, uh, and I, I slowly made the transition as well. Uh, and was introduced by the same friend to good coffee, uh, which at first I thought this is weird. Flay this has, this tastes weird. Um, and I realize it tastes really good. Uh, but there's other things like, like, you know, working out or running, right? Mm -hmm. You start off working out or running because you have to, and you're just looking for some sort of results and you eventually fall in love with, you can actually get to the point where you fall in love with working out or, or running even like yeah. I, I love to run. It can happen with you. You see it in the development of tastes of children, right? At first, all they want is sugar. And then as you get older, you're like, do you want to, you want a piece of hard candy or a brisket? I mean, I would always choose, I mean, or or any other kind of you know, even like broccoli cooked the right way is better than candy, mm -hmm. you know, or at least the hard nasty candy the kids like. Um, <laughs> and so, the taste tastes develop, music tastes, tastes and art and and whatever, all these things sort of develop, but they they can't develop if you never feed that, if you never right. train yourself to some extent, and the good is. The good, I mean, Wittgenstein says ethics and aesthetics are one and the same, right? I don't know if he says it exactly like that. He says, Basically. It, he says it in German, so he says it in some sort of mean, angry way. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, ethics and aesthetics are one. And Plato does the same thing where he says, uh, the you know, where he equates the good with a capital G and the beautiful with a capital B. But the beautiful is that which we desire. The good is that which we have to do, but we don't like. But Plato says, no, they're the same thing. Well, it's beautiful. Does doing the good, read Psalm 119. If you ever read Psalm 119, you're like, what the heck's wrong with this guy? He's like, <laughs> I love your law. I mean, law really should be translated instruction or Torah, law. Law, that translating law is 
maybe part of the problem here, but but your instruction, your is wisdom and beautiful, and I love it, and it's so wonderful. And you're like, what is this guy just keeps going on and on about how these rules we have to follow are so beautiful? What's wrong with this guy? Well, if, if and he's not faking it, he's not saying it because he's a polite Southern Christian. He's saying it because he, in fact, loves God's law. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean he didn't fail. But he actually loves God. There's something about God's wisdom and instruction that he came to love. This is what virtue, that's why Joel said, this is what virtue ethics is trying to get at is how do you transform the desires to so that you actually begin to love the good as opposed to loving the not good and doing the good because you have to. And and let, let me be clear that on that Wittgenstein quote about ethics and aesthetics being the same. What Wittgenstein isn't saying is that ethics can be reduced to taste in the way that we often reduce beauty to taste. Like whatever you think is beautiful is what's beautiful and whatever you think is right is right. That's not what Wittgenstein's saying. He's yeah. saying he's saying there is something that we we can attune ourselves to that when we have when we properly uh, uh, shape our desires, we will recognize as good. There's something we will recognize as beautiful. Um, and so it's, it's in the same way that we have to, that taking courses about art and, and, and learning about art can help us recognize really good art, taking courses in ethics done correctly and, and training ourselves can about ethics, about what the good is, can help us to appreciate the good and be drawn toward the good because we see it as good. So uh, you know, when I'm thinking about art, I'm thinking about that uh, banana duct tape to the wall. But um, I almost want to ask, do you have any recommendations for good ethics classes or good aesthetics classes that train people to love the good and the beautiful? Or are those things, do they exist anymore besides your own <laughs> class? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I'm just kidding. That's that's right. I'm, I'm maybe poking too many people in the eyes, but uh, but, but I, I think there's an element of that kind of ethics class is going to look very different than an ethics class that focuses on what do you do in this situation or what does this ethical theory tell you to do in this situation, which most ethics classes are. And I mean, I'll be honest, my, some of my first ethics classes were that way because I I hadn't come to fully grasp what's going on here with but, but you do need to talk about i think that stuff is good to be good to be talking about like i'm teaching bioethics this fall i never think of, i didn't think i'd be interested in bioethics but i'm actually somewhat interested because bringing up these situations actually begins to drudge up what you consider to be good what are the values that are and when i say values that are fundamental i don't mean things that you're supposed to care you think you're supposed to care about i mean what do you genuinely care about what matters to you? What moves you? Uh, talking about particular situations can bring that up. But that's, right. again, a different, it's not like, okay, if you're a natural law ethicist, what do you do with, you know, plastic surgery or whatever? What does a utilitarian think about this situation? What does a deontologist you think about this situation? That stuff's, eh, I mean, we you have to do that because education, you're supposed to be able to take a test and show that you know information. But training and ethics is really about beginning to be exposed with your own, with what you actually care about. And then looking at it and saying, wait, am I caring about things that are good? And then transforming one's habits to care about the right sorts of things. Yeah. Now, now how you're probably thinking, 
they are just droning on and on without actually talking about how do we actually change our desires. And and that's part of the reason why we keep droning on and on is because we can't sit down with each one of you one-on-one and figure out where you're at and what the next step is for you and and what what you care about what what you know what you what you value what you see as the good and so it's difficult on a podcast to say hey here's what you do and if you do this it'll solve all your problems so we're not we're not even trying to do that so if that's what you're expecting from us you're going to be disappointed well i mean we do we do offer a service it's $150 an hour <laughs> online. No, I'm just kidding. We, we don't. But I'll take $150 if you'd like to give yeah. it. <laughs> so, but one example, well, what, what it comes down to is if you want to change your desires, you have to start paying attention to things differently. Um, when you think about what art classes do to help you appreciate art. What they do is they highlight things so that you know when you look at the art or you listen to the music, you're able to pay attention to something that catches your eye or catches your ear that you recognize as being a good thing that you weren't able to do before. Mm-hmm. It's training your attention to to know what to be looking for. Um, there's a book called uh, The World Beyond Your Head by Matthew Crawford that is all about the role of attention in in our world. He, he talks about how you know everything is trying to vie for your attention. So it's really hard for us to direct our attention in any one direction for any length of time because, I mean, he talks about airports. If you go to an airport, which you probably don't do as much these days, given that we're in the pandemic, but if you think back to when you would go to the airport, it was there. There were billboards or things like billboards everywhere you looked. In, in fact, depending on on the airport, you might have even had advertisements inside the the bin that you put your shoes and your laptop and all that stuff in, because everything is paying is trying to grab your attention. And if you want to get a get a chance to not have everything grabbing your attention, you have to pay to go into the the special rooms of whatever airline you're flying on, or you have to be a member even to to do that. Um, it, we live in a society that's always trying to vie for our attention, so we don't do a good job of directing our attention, and we don't. And it's very difficult for us to direct our attention to anything for a long period of time. I mean. If you have a smartphone, you you know this this to be true because you're always uh, maybe you're not, but I'm always checking things or you know it, it. Even if I'm sitting and reading, it's it's tempting for me to pick up my smartphone or to you know go check something. It, it we just don't do a good job of paying attention, which makes it means that we're often willing to accept that our desires are what they are, and we can't really change our desires and. And we, we kind of have this defeatist mindset before we start. So what I'm trying to get at is we have to work to pay attention to different things if we're going to change our desires. 
Yeah. If, if I can make a quick note about that, because what this means is that the things that get our attention are only things that are super, super, I want to say sugary, because that's the image I have in my head. Um, only things that really, really stand out. And so um, it's almost like it's almost like when you're full, you still have room for dessert. And it's like we're so full of stuff all the time because we're attending to so many things that the only things that we pay attention to are the things that really jump out. So everything has to be Marvel hero movie level for us to be to give much attention to it. Like I think a lot of people, a lot of contemporary people, and this is a problem I, I suffer as well can't really enjoy things like classical music because it's too slow. It's not exciting. Where's the, where's the hook? I need the hook. I need the hook. I need the, I need the, da, 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 da. you know, I need something to, you know, that really stands out and catches my attention to, to sit still and to read, you know, read a book like the brothers Karamazov or to, uh, I don't know, maybe even watch a longer movie that has a lot more character development or something like that. That is very difficult for us to do. We want, we want some sort of quick fix now and we, if we don't, if, if it doesn't do that, our attention, it won't pull our attention because our attention is too, needs to jump to the next sugary thing. So the, the point is then if the good and the beautiful, if what is truly, that we're truly meant to pay attention to is actually deep and rich, it may be, it may not be flashy on the surface. It may look like something that's not terribly flashy on the surface. And, and, and it's going to, be even more difficult for us to train our attention. But when, once we can, if we can start to train our attention in that way, um, then we find ourselves desiring these better, deeper things. Um, and, you know, th- there are people that when they get into a mall or an airport or someplace where, you know, there's this everything vying for your attention it's almost it, it becomes very uncomfortable for them because they they have trained themselves to pay attention to the deeper things that when you know when all of this noise of, you know is going on around them it it's it's troublesome um i mean they can still function in it but it but it it's not they feel out of place because our society is not set up for us to pay attention to deeper things so what are some ways that you can train yourself to pay attention to deeper things? Well, spiritual disciplines, if you understand spiritual disciplines correctly, help you pay attention to deeper things. So I know a lot of people have, take issue with spiritual disciplines because they think that it's a matter of uh, legalism, that we ha- if you do X, Y, and Z, then it's going to produce positive outcome and, you know, cue. And that's not what spiritual disciplines are intended to do. Spiritual disciplines are intended to help you slow down, to help you pay attention to different things. So like the the discipline of silence is not just for you to get used to not hearing anything or saying anything, but it's to it's to help you learn to be okay with not having noise around you. It's um, Dallas Willard talks about uh, the discipline of not having the last word, um, which is for a philosopher is so incredibly difficult, which 
you know, when you understand he was a philosopher, it makes you respect him all the more. But yeah, I, I have something I need to say when you're when you're all done. <laughs> So, but he he said, if we train ourselves that when we hear something that we want to say something to, that our first reaction isn't to speak, but our first reaction is to listen, that's going to go a long way because then we're going to be training ourselves to pay attention to what other people are saying, to pay attention to what's going on, as opposed to being focused on what am I going to say next? How am I going to respond? How am I going to jump in and get my point across? Which... I am still very terrible at that. In fact, Travis and I were having a conversation before this recording where I did exactly that thing. Um, <laughs> and, and in all yeah. fairness, I was doing it as well. So. <laughs> but it, the the our propensity is we want we want to make the noise. We want to draw attention to ourselves, and the discipline of silence, at least, helps us to learn to pay attention to more than just what's flashy. The discipline of fasting isn't about helping you lose weight or or making you hungry. It's to learn to pay attention, both to pay attention to your body, but also realize that sometimes your body's calling for more attention than it actually really needs. Um, th- these there's different things that that are drawing us deeper. But if we go into these spiritual disciplines expecting just a simple solution, that this uh, this action produces the result we want, we're going to miss the whole point of it. And so we have to do actions that help us pay attention to things that we can start to see the value, to start to see the goodness, start to see the reality of things instead of the things, the noise that goes on around us and as we learn to pay attention, as we learn to value, we also start to desire those things. We start to desire to time to ourselves to where we can block out all the noise and really get deeper. We we enjoy reading the Bible, not just because it's what we're supposed to do, but because we we recognize the truths that, that it shows us when we slow down and pay attention to what is being said and not just the words that we you know skim with our eyes if we can learn to pay attention it changes our desires which is backwards from the way that we are told things work we are told we have to have this desire and then that will help us pay attention and that's why people give up on workout plans that's why people give up on diets that's why people give up on marriages is because they don't have the desire, so that must mean that must mean that 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 they're not going to be able to get it, get the you know, get the desire, get get the results. And it's the other way around. We have to work, we have to do the work, and that changes our desires and makes the work easier. Yeah, Jesus. When Jesus says, "Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also," he's not saying, uh, I don't know, where you happen to have your money setting. He's saying wherever you give time and treasure, your heart follows. And so there's a sense we're always waiting. And we have this sense, again, it's it's sort of sl- like it contains Christian truths, but it's sort of sloppily put together. You know, we're sinners. And so we need, we need God to transform us. And so I'm waiting for God to make me have the right desires. No, that's not what we're called to do. 
Right. I mean, you read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that doesn't mean work so that you get saved. What he's saying is you have been saved. Now work it out so that you become the kind of, take the mind of Christ, right? That's what just came right before he said that. This is Philippians 2. When he's talking about, you know, you, you develop, this is who you are. Now, de- now develop it. And how do you develop it? You develop it by coming to to desire the right things. And, and the thing is, again, this isn't about desiring something that is in fact ugly and boring and old and whatever. It's about desiring something that is in fact far more beautiful than all the things that are before you. But you can't get to it because you keep getting, I don't know, lollipops and cheesecake thrown at your face and you can't eat it. So you never quite get to the meal that you're meant to eat. Um, even though maybe a better way of putting it is how Lewis says it when we're playing with mud pies because you can't dream of a, of an actual vacation at a beach or whatever. Um, I'm not precisely how he says it that way, but this training ourselves in the spiritual disciplines causes us and, and just learning to be quite learning to pay attention to these things causes this sense of this deep beauty that goes beyond the stuff that's normally vying for our attention. And so growing in virtue and educating in virtue, to put quite simply, is to expose to the student or have or to open your own eyes to see the beauty that is already there. Yeah. We normally train people by saying, and we have to do this with kids, if you do X, you're going to get punished. But what we want to grow into, and Peeper talks about this in his book on hope, is where when we we begin to see the sin as ugly and we see the right action as in fact beautiful and desirable. That's that's what we're aiming toward. We're never going to get there perfectly, not until Christ returns, but that's what we're aiming for. And if we're aiming to get to get to the point where we see the good as beautiful and the bad as ugly, then we have to really we well, we have to pay attention. Yeah. Right? Not to the results. And not to whatever, but to the thing itself. What is beautiful about this? What is ugly about this other thing? Because sin doesn't often look ugly to us. It looks quite attractive. Well, when the other person's doing it, it looks ugly. When I'm doing it, it looks beautiful. It looks good. It looks attractive. Uh, the good doesn't look good, and except when the other person's doing it. But So what do we need to do to be able to see the good? Because the good is, in fact, beautiful. I believe that's true because I'm not a sophist. I mean, I, I have a tendency toward that. But I'm not a sophist. I agree with Plato, and I believe I agree with God. God is in fact good and beautiful and desirable, and His ways are in fact the ways of beauty and goodness. If that is true, if you really believe that, and not just saying it, but actually deep down you in fact believe that, and it doesn't look that way to you, then what do we need to do to be able to see things as they really are? How, what does it mean to have eyes that can hear and ear and eyes that? <laughs> It doesn't mean anything because that's nonsense. What does it mean to have ears that can hear and eyes that can see? Well, you know, and and when, as we keep saying, the good, the beautiful power, all of those things are found most clearly demonstrated in Jesus on the cross, which to our Western modern minds makes no sense. But we have to learn to see the world. I mean, you could even say learn to see the world upside down in a sense. To see the reality of things. And when, we, I mean, we live in a culture that that is not structured that way. 
and it's very easy to buy into to those myths into that uh sugary noise and and miss out on the deeper richness of of the goodness and and love of God. It may sound like we didn't say much. Just start doing the spiritual disciplines, but do it to try to see the beautiful and see the good. But we will talk more about this. Uh, when we get into Plato's Republic and the formation of desires, we're going to talk, we'll give a little more detail about this, or at least related detail. You see that what it means to, to teach in virtue is not the direct way that we normally teach. It often comes in sort of indirect measures of trying to show rather than than straight up say what the... Uh, let, let, let me give one more example. Um, and this is an example that uh, Crawford gives in his book that I mentioned. And he talks about the people who build pipe organs and how there isn't some mathematical clarity that you do when you're cleaning and tuning all of the pipes, but it's it's something that you you learn to kind of he, just hear that when it's the right way. And it's not something that you can just say, you know, this is right. It, you, you have to be trained to listen carefully, to pay careful attention to certain things in order to be able to do it. And, you know, those of, those of you who have heard a beautiful pipe organ played magnificently can, can recognize the, the beauty that's, that's there. But the way that that beauty is able to be produced in that way is because these people, these people who manufacture and clean pipe organs know, have learned to pay attention to the right things in the right way so that it can be, so that the, the, the instrument can produce those sounds. Um, and if they hadn't been trained in the, in that way, we would never get the beauty that we can get. And so, you know, th this doesn't just apply to ethics. It applies to, to many things in life, but we're applying it specifically to ethics right now because we, we uh, just across the board, we have to learn to pay attention to what really matters and, and learn to go beyond the noise, go beyond the sugary stuff to what really matters, what's really there. And that can start off as hard and painful and tasteless but it can become something wonderful and expose us to beauties and goodness that we were unaware of, right? Yeah. Plato's cave allegory. Guy's getting dragged out of the cave. Yep. The brightness hurts. But then he, then the person sees wonders that they, they couldn't even have dreamed of before. Right. But initially it can be painful. And we learn this because people tell us, people who have gone before us have told us about it. Otherwise, we'd all just be idiots locked down in this cave. But we'll probably get to that next time. <laughs> uh, but for this, hopefully this was, this was somewhat helpful, even though it gets a little funky. But that's the whole point that we're trying to make is that teaching virtue is not straightforward. It's, it's strange. It's complicated. It changes with the person. It changes with the situation because you're trying to open eyes. And I think we see this with Jesus, who had a small group of, of close disciples. He didn't start a mega church because it's hard to do. He, you know, his sermons were confusing, made, drove a lot of people insane. Other people's were, other people were intrigued. And, and he, even those 12 guys 
didn't get it. Not all of them got it. And I don't think any of them got it entirely, but, but all of them didn't get it to some of some of them really didn't get it. Yeah. But he set them on a, he set many of them on, except for the one set them on a path. Right. Where they grew and grew and grew. And that's another element. You don't just make someone virtuous, right? You, you, uh, I, I have taught in classes on Plato that Plato didn't think virtuous was being virtuous was possessing virtue, but to be virtuous was to be a pursuer of virtue. And that's all the better you're going to do, at least in this life, we might say. On that note, I think we'll call it to an end and we'll we'll jump back into this. But we're going to start making a transition into how this relates to politics, if it can. We'll even well, maybe maybe we're we'll be talking way out of our areas. But but for now, this is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day and thanks for listening.